Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you today. How many of you are confused as to what day it is? How many of you looked at your bulletin to make sure that it front said February and not December? If you're just joining us, we are not that weird or that, con- well, okay, I, maybe we are that weird. We're not that confused, at least. Um, we're just celebrating what comes up next in our passage. We're working our way through Luke, and so this morning we come to Luke chapter 2 and the story of Jesus' birth, and it just so happens that throughout time and history, the church has written a lot of songs about that. You might call them Christmas songs, but I just call them worship songs. And so they're songs about what we're preaching on, so we sang them today. So hopefully that hasn't confused you too badly. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2 then. And we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. If you want to grab one of the blue Bibles in front of you, this is on page 949. 949. All right, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when you are a kid, one of the most unsettling things that can happen to you is when you're out at a restaurant 
or a store with your family, just minding your own business, and you look over, and out of nowhere, you see one of your teachers. Your world is instantly thrown into utter confusion because you had never for a moment even considered that your teachers might actually exist outside of the school building. I mean, yes, there's Mrs. Jones, but she's not in her classroom. She's at Kroger. I didn't even know Mrs. Jones ate food. She's like an altogether different species. Now we laugh, it's like, yeah, I remember that as a kid, but it happens when you're grown-ups too, right? If you've ever had this weird experience of going on vacation, out of state, far away from home, and you unexpectedly bump into someone you know from back home, suddenly you're weirded out and you think, yeah, I know them, but what are they doing here? Or everybody's favorite, the company Christmas party. Suddenly you see the same people that you work with every day, but now you're not at work. And they're dressed like normal people. And they're like just hanging out. As you talk to them, you realize, wow, there's so much about them I didn't know because we never talk about that at work. All these circumstances help us see there's something jarring about seeing someone you're so familiar with, but experiencing them in a new context. It can make you see them in a whole different way. It can help you realize things about them you've never noticed or better understand who they really are. It can stretch your categories about them and maybe shake you out of a rut that you just kind of put them in a box saying that's who they are. Now you realize, oh, maybe that's not all they are. Maybe I had them totally wrong. Well, this morning, that's what I'm hoping happens for each of us. We've been singing these Christmas songs that we know so well. And now we're looking at the Christmas story, one of, if not the most familiar parts of Scripture And yet something's different this morning. Namely, it's not Christmas. We put the decorations away. There's no no sales tomorrow to go explore. It's just a normal Sunday. Some of you are not actually sure that we're allowed to do this. I checked. It is legal. Now, it might feel a little weird singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing in February. But I think this can be a really good thing. Looking at the birth of Jesus in a different context than we're used to can help us be unsettled in a really helpful way. It can force us to see things from a different perspective, different things going on in our lives through a different lens. We can realize new aspects of the story, better understand what happened. Why? Well, because we're shaken out of the rut that we only talk about these things in December. So this morning, as we begin, I want to invite you to look with me at one of the most incredible stories ever with fresh eyes. Don't assume, don't tune out like, oh yeah, here we go, I've heard this last Christmas. Instead, press in and let the story of Jesus' birth astound you all over again. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Don't just come and see, come Adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Well, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that it contains yet another song. If you've been with us as we're going through Luke, we've already seen Mary's song back in chapter 1. 
Last week, Pastor Ben looked at Zechariah's song. Today, we get the angel song, famously known by its Latin translation, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And that's a fitting title for our song and for the passage, because as we'll see, this story is all about God's glory. So here's our outline this morning. First, we're going to look at glory reversed in verses 1 to 7. Then in verses 8 to 14, we're going to look at glory announced. And then we'll close in verses 15 to 20 with glory beheld. Okay, so that's where we're going. So let's look first at glory reversed. Look back at verses 1 to 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. All right, so here's what Luke is doing. He's situating the story for us. He says this is during the reign of the man named Caesar Augustus when he was in charge in Rome. And even though Luke only makes a passing reference to him, he doesn't tell us a lot because his, his first hearers and readers would have known all this. Even though he's only making a passing reference, he's already setting us up to think about glory. See, at this time, Caesar would have been viewed as the most glorious man alive. This guy ruled the entire Roman Empire, which at this point would have been larger in land size than the continental United States and would have contained 3.3 million people. Not only that, but because Caesar had conquered Rome's enemies, he had established a time of lasting peace known as the Pax Romana or the Roman Peace. And there are writings from this time that talk about Caesar as a savior and a god. And the oath that you swore to show loyalty to the empire declared, Caesar is Lord. So Luke's setting the stage here. The birth of Jesus took place during the reign of Caesar Augustus. You know, the one they call savior, God, and Lord. The one who brought an era of peace. The one to whom glory belongs. Right? Well, we'll see a little bit later, but here we see that Caesar did what Caesars do. He wanted to tax the people. So first, before you could tax them, he had to get them all registered. So he orders a registration where everyone would have to go back to their ancestral hometown. It's like homecoming, but without the parades, and it said, you know, you're going to get taxed. Not as fun. Well, everyone included Joseph. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, I... I love this part of the story. To me, this is maybe one of the most amazing parts. Caesar is completely unaware of Joseph and Mary. He doesn't know that they exist. I mean, somebody could have walked up to him and said, Caesar, you know by decreeing this, Joseph and Mary and Nazareth are going to have to go to Bethlehem. And he'd say, who? Where? Instead, he's, all he's thinking is he issues this empire-wide decree for one purpose and one purpose only. To further his own glory. But what he doesn't realize is that in doing so, he's actually a pawn in the hand of God to bring God's purposes to pass. 
and to show his glory. Because when this decree goes out, one of the things it does is it requires Joseph to take Mary to Bethlehem. Now keep in mind, Joseph and Mary didn't have plans to go to Bethlehem. They weren't sitting around, they, you know, they talk about, oh, this, you're pregnant, okay, maybe, should we do like a baby moon? What do you think? Like before you have the baby, should we go visit, visit Bethlehem? This wasn't even on their radar. But God intervened and used this wannabe glorious ruler of the empire to get them there and accomplish his purposes for his glory. Now for Mary and Joseph, you've got to imagine this decree probably felt really inconvenient. I would go so far as to say that it might have been annoying. It probably felt like it had nothing to do with God. I mean, they're not, they didn't hear about this decree, I think, and right away think, God's doing this. They just thought this is just more government frustration. Oh, another thing the government's wanting us to do. But behind it all, God was orchestrating everything to bring about his purposes. So it got me thinking, and so I'm going to ask you to think with me. Do you ever have those things that just happen in your life? Those things that seem to have nothing to do with God. Maybe it's a, a work policy. Maybe it is a new law on the books. Maybe a new politician gets elected. Maybe it's just things going on in the world. These things that happen that feel like they have nothing to do with God, but if you're honest, they're just they're inconvenient. They just kind of mess up the good things that you're trying to do in life. That you're trying to follow God, but man, this thing over here, that makes it hard to do. Well, one of our encouragements here is that when we look at those things, don't judge events in your life only by what you can understand. Be encouraged by what we see here. That underneath it all, God's always up to something good. What's he up to here? Here, he's getting Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus. Well, why does that matter? It matters because of what he promised in Micah 5. Listen, in Micah 5, God says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, the promised ruler, the Messiah, was to be born in Bethlehem. God had promised it years and years ago. Everybody knew this. And so, because he's promised to be born in Bethlehem, what does God do? God gets him to Bethlehem. And notice that Luke's making sure that we don't miss the connections to David. As, as Pastor Phil prayed a little bit ago, helping us remember that, Luke's saying, hey, guys, don't forget all the stuff we've been saying about David. Look what he says. He says, they went to the city of David because Joseph was of the lineage of David. It's almost like he's trying to say, hey guys, key in. Listen, listen to what I'm saying. So he gives us Mary, pregnant with the long-awaited Davidic king, traveling to the city of David where God promised that his Messiah would come from. So everything's unfolding just like God said. And all it took was a worldwide decree to get her there. Now that she's on her way, verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
I love this, <laughs> these verses because here in the most understated and simple language, the most incredible thing ever is described. She gave birth. It sounds so mundane, so ordinary. It might come up in conversation daily when you hear somebody else, oh yeah, that they gave birth to their, their son. They gave birth to their daughter. Doesn't, it doesn't seem sensational, but ponder what's happening here. The eternal entered time. The infinite took on the limitations of a human body. The invisible became visible. The spirit put on flesh. The creator stepped into creation. God became man. Mild he lays his glory by. The glorious God has come as a lowly infant. And notice, this high and holy one was born not in a palace or a temple, but in an animal stall. The king of kings was laid in a feeding trough. I mean, this, this is incredible. This is mind-blowing. This is something that, once you know this, it has to be made known. Which is what we see in the next section. In verses 8 to 14, glory announced. And as we look at this announcement that's made in this section, we're going to see three things. I think these give us good hooks to hang our thoughts on. We're going to see great fear, great joy, and great glory. So look with me first at the great fear in verses 8 and 9. Now, as we begin, remember what's being announced here. God is about to announce the birth of his only son, the Messiah. God has planned this moment before the foundation of the world. As far back as the Garden of Eden, God had promised to send an offspring of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse of sin and death. And since then, for centuries, he'd given us glimpses and types and shadows of what this coming one would be like. God had whispered news of his coming through the prophets. But now, God was ready to announce the wait was over. The king has come. Think about how excited you are to announce the birth of your child. This is God's one and only. This is his one shot, and he can do it up as big as he wants. This is God announcing his son has come. This was, without exaggeration, the biggest announcement in the history of mankind. So where would this announcement be made? A palace, or maybe a temple. The largest venue in the largest world city of the most important people. And and who would it be made to? Maybe the world's greatest leaders, or those who are significant in the religious world, the most influential, the richest, maybe the most devoted worshipers. Verse eight tells us the who and where of this announcement. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, this is just crazy. We're so comfortable with this that we don't, I mean, think of all the big announcements that are going to get, like, things that are going to happen tonight. There's a football game or something, I've heard. And and it's just like, imagine that big stage. This is where all the companies want to roll out their new commercials, and they want to just, any big announcement, like, if you can get... Super Bowl time, that's the time to do it. So either God has a horrible marketing firm or else he's just got a completely different way of thinking about how to make big announcements. 
the world's biggest announcement ever, he says it's about to come to a bunch of shepherds out in a field. This is stunning because shepherds didn't exactly have the best reputation. These guys were smelly, dirty, a little rough around the edges. Many were dishonest and thieves. They were considered ceremonial unclean. And they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court because they were so untrustworthy. The only class of people lower than the shepherds were lepers. The only thing that you could do worse than being a shepherd was to have this deadly skin disease. These were the lowly, the outcasts, and the immoral. The ones who did not have a bright future. And yet, as God planned the biggest announcement in history, that's who he wanted the good news to go to. When God sent his son, the people he wanted to hear about him first were the ones who the world looked down upon. And what were, these, what were these lowly shepherds doing? They were just living their ordinary, messy lives. They were doing their jobs, watching their sheep, hanging out with their friends. They weren't looking for God to show up. It wasn't like on the agenda, like, hey, maybe he'll come tonight. This was, in fact, he's probably the farthest thing from their minds on this night. But then suddenly, glory interrupted their lives. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So picture with me, you got these shepherds sitting out in the field, surrounded by deep darkness. I mean, they're they're not in a city, there's no light pollution. They're out where you can see the stars, Their, their eyes have adjusted, they can see really well at night. And then suddenly... The darkness vanishes and the sky explodes with light. It says the glory of the Lord shone around them. I mean, just try to grasp how bright this must have been. The best I could come up with is if you took the floodlights from every sports stadium in the world. Those are some big lights, right? Let's say somehow we got them all into one spot. We put them together. If you took that and compared it to this light, those stadium lights would just look like a little flashlight out in the dark. Yeah, maybe you could see it, but it would look like nothing. And in the midst of all this brightness, it says there was an angel of the Lord. Now, again, just a reminder, please remember that this angel is not some cute, pudgy, baby-like creature. Instead, angels are powerful, flaming warrior beings who shake the ground when they speak. When people see them, they are terrified. But an angel of the Lord is not the only thing that appeared to them that night. It also says the glory of the Lord shone around them. When this same glory descended on Mount Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments, God warned the people, don't come too close or you'll die. When Ezekiel, the prophet, sees this glory, three different times he sees the glory and then he falls on his face. When the same glory fills the tabernacle in Leviticus 9, fire comes out from the Lord and consumes the offering. And it says, when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And right after that, when two priests offer something that God had not 
instructed them to offer, that same fire came out from the glorious presence of the Lord and consumed them. What's the point? The glory of the Lord is not to be taken lightly. Whenever people encounter the glory of God, they are rightly terrified because the glory of God and the sin of man do not mix. That's why the people couldn't go near the mountain. That's why there was a curtain separating the holy of holies so that people didn't go in. Why? Because the glory of God is a consuming fire that will destroy everything sinful in its presence. That's why when sinful people encounter the glory of the Lord, they're rightly terrified. Because when we see ourselves in the burning light of God's glory, it reveals our sin. We feel naked and exposed before him. And when we see what we're really like, it makes us afraid. It's been this way ever since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, what was their response? What did they do? They ran and hid from the glorious presence of God. They were afraid because they knew they were naked and ashamed. They knew what they had done was wrong And they couldn't bear the thought of God seeing them for who they really were. They knew that sinners cannot stand in the presence of God's glory. And it's been that way ever since. So here, when the shepherds are confronted with the light of God's glory, they're terrified. It says they are filled with great fear. They were terrified because they could no longer hide their sinful, unclean lives in the darkness of night. Not when the glory of the Lord showed up. Friends, you and I are just like these shepherds here. Ever since the garden, all of us have responded to our sin the same way. We've all been afraid of being found out. Afraid of being exposed for who we really are deep down. Afraid because we know our sin and God's glory cannot mix. And we've all dealt with this fear of our sin being exposed the same way that Adam and Eve did. We run away and hide so that we hope God and one another won't be able to find us and see us for who we really are. We try to cover our shame and our nakedness with the fig leaves of self-righteousness so that we won't be exposed. We just cover up the problem by being good on the outside in the hopes that no one will actually see what's going on in the inside. They'll only see what we want them to see. And they'll never know what's really going on in our hearts. The Bible says this is why we're all naturally allergic to the light of God's glory. In John 3, Jesus says, The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his work should be exposed. We know that. That's why the glory of God terrifies us because it reveals everything. We love the darkness because we think we can hide there, that our sin is safe from God's watching eyes. But Hebrews 4.13 reminds us, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And when we're confronted with the light of God's glory and come face to face with the fact that God sees all the mess we try to hide, 
just like the shepherds here, we are rightly filled with great fear. The shepherds know they're in the presence of glory and the light has exposed their sin. The cover of darkness has vanished and there's nowhere left to hide. Their sin deserves judgment and so they waited for the angel to announce their doom. But then, a funny thing happened. The angel announces a shockingly different message. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Just imagine what the shepherds would have felt when they heard this message. The glory of the Lord appears to them. They're terrified. They think, I'm a goner. I mean, this makes me think of that scene that's in like, every, like so many movies where a criminal steps out of their house and suddenly they're blinded by the, the spotlights of the SWAT team and they hear somebody say, put your hands up, you're surrounded. They know in that moment there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. This is it. They know that they're guilty of their crimes. And now justice has come for them. That's how the shepherds are feeling here. They've been caught in their sin. The lights have come on and they have been laid bare in the light of God's glory. They know who they are and what they've done. And they know who God is and his glory. They know what they deserve and they're terrified. They're about to get it. And so they cringe, waiting for the angel to announce their condemnation. But look at verse 10. What does the angel say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. But wait, but why? Why not? We, we just saw why these shepherds had every good reason to be afraid. These lowly, dirty, Messy, sinful people cannot stand in the glorious presence of the High and Holy One. Why shouldn't they be afraid? The angel tells us in verse 10. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The reason the shepherds don't need to be afraid is because he comes bringing good news. Not news of judgment or destruction or condemnation. Good news of great joy, news that's so good, the joy it brings is stronger than the fear they felt. So what was this news? What news could possibly change the shepherd's great fear in verse 9 to great joy in verse 10? Verse 11 gives us the reason for this great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Friends, the news that transforms our fears into joy is a birth announcement. But this is not your standard text where you find out how big the kid is or how much they weighed, which I never understand anyway. As long as they're not five foot eight and 170 pounds, I'm like, that sounds like a baby. But we're not told how big Jesus is or what he weighed. Instead, we're told about who he is. He's a savior. He's the Christ, and he's the Lord. Look at these three titles with me. First, he's Savior. He's the one who has come to rescue us. 
Friends, none of us can save ourselves. We've all sinned and stand guilty before this God. We can try to hide from that truth. We can try to cover it up with good works. We can try to live in denial. But the fact remains, we all stand justly condemned for our crimes against the Creator. But the angel says, fear not, because the one who's born, he's a Savior. John 3 says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Son of God who was born that day is the one who will save us from every sin, from every enemy, from even death itself. He will free us from the shame and take away the guilt. He is the Savior. But not only that, he's also the Christ, the Messiah, meaning he's the anointed one who'd been long foretold, God's chosen king. He's the one that the law pointed to. He's the one that all the prophets foretold. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And this Savior in Christ is none other than the Lord himself. Now, now get, get this with me. Look down at your Bibles. See how earlier in the passage it mentions the glory of the Lord? And it talks about an angel of the Lord. There's no doubt in those places that the Lord refers to God, the high and holy one. Now the angel announces that this one who's been born in Bethlehem is that same Lord. The Lord himself is here. The one who commands the angel armies. He is Emmanuel God with us. And who was this child born to? The angel says, unto you is born a Savior. Unto who? Unto sinful, outcast, lowly shepherds. This good news of great joy, he says, will be for all the people. Friends, Jesus didn't come for good people or respectable people or people who have their stuff together. He came to people like the shepherds, people in the darkness, living their messy lives, full of fear because of they know who they are down deep. In other words, people like you and me. He came unto the lowly. Isaiah 57 says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, the good news of Christmas is that the high and holy one has come low and he has come low not to judge the lowly but to save and revive us. And what will be the sign of all this? I mean, that's, those are some massive promises. Give, give us a sign, angel. He says, okay. In verse 12, the angel says, the sign that this Christ the Lord has come as Savior is that you'll find the highest one in the lowest situation. You won't find a prince in a palace wrapped in royal robes. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. But why would Jesus do this? Why would he go so low to become like one of us? Hebrews 2 tells us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, Jesus came as flesh and blood so that he could deliver us from the fear of death. We're right back where we started. Did you hear it? We're back to where the angel said, fear not. Why? Because a Savior who has been born who will deliver us from the fear of sin and death. He's born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give us second birth. Friends, this is good news of great joy. But the scene's not over yet. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, after the angel announces his good news, the sky explodes again. And now it's not just one angel. Keep in mind that one angel was enough to terrify the shepherds and produce a blinding light. But now it's not one. Now it's probably millions of the heavenly host praising God and singing about two amazing results of the good news they just shared. Glory to God and peace on earth. Now keep in mind, when it says heavenly host, that's a military term. Host is a military term. And yet what I love is that this army is not declaring war, but announcing peace. And this peace the angels announce is peace with God. The glorious God whom we rebelled against could have crushed us. But instead he came to be crushed for us. Jesus came not to make war on us, but to make peace by the blood of his cross. This is why we can sing God and sinner reconciled because we're no longer at war with the glorious one. But who is this peace for? We love to toss that phrase around at Christmas time. Peace on earth, peace on earth. It doesn't say it's for everyone. It says this peace is among those with whom he is pleased. So who is that? Who are those with whom God is pleased? Well, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In other words, those with whom God is pleased are not those who are good or moral or religious, the ones with whom God is pleased are those who turn to him in faith. The ones who, when they see the glory of the Lord, they realize how lowly and sinful they are. The ones who admit they need a savior. The ones who hear the angel's song and they say, that's what I need. I need a savior. I need a Christ. I need a Lord. And they trust the savior that God provides. And when we turn from our sin and trust this savior, Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys got me too excited here. And when we trust this Jesus, God gets the glory as our rescuer. <clears throat> In fact, everything about the good news that the angels sing here points us to the glory of God. We see the glories of his love, the glories of his kindness, of his mercy and his grace. We see his glory in fulfilling his promises to send his Savior. 
And we see the glory of his wisdom and power to send him in a way that no one imagined. So it is no wonder the angels sing glory to God in the highest. So how do you follow news like that? Look at verses 15 to 17. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So after these angels leave, these shepherds can't contain themselves. They have to go behold for themselves this glory that they just heard about. They want to see this Savior and King. So they hurry to go see this thing that has happened. And our passage then closes with three responses to this glory. And I think these three responses are three great takeaways for us as we look at the end of this passage here. Look at verses 18 to 20. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Three responses to the good news of Jesus here. Marveling, pondering, and praise. Everyone who heard, like, so the shepherds clearly, they didn't just go see Mary, Joseph, and the baby. Either on the way or after they left, they were telling people. This says, all who heard wondered. They marveled. They were astonished when they heard the Messiah had come. And he'd come in the lowliest of ways. They wondered and marveled at what was said about this child. But Mary went even further. She treasured these things up and pondered them in her heart. Pondering meant she kept, she kept thinking about them, trying to better understand what this meant. Remember, we'll see later in Mary's life, she doesn't always understand who Jesus is or what he's doing. But she kept trusting him and pondering the good news she'd heard because she wanted to understand. So she kept meditating and reflecting on, okay, who, what does that mean? Who is this? And how does that change my life? And then there were the shepherds. They went back to their normal life. They went back to their sheep, back to their job, but they went back changed men. They were glorifying and praising God. They couldn't help but worship because of the glory they had heard and seen. So my invitation for us this morning, friends, is let's do the same. Let's marvel that God has come to us. Unto us, here in this room, was born a Savior who is the long-promised Christ and Lord of all. Let's ponder his glory and what that means for you and me in our day-to-day lives. And let's praise the God who has done all these things. Let our song join with the angels and say, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Would you pray with me? Father, we do praise and glorify you for sending your son for us. God, we marvel at the depths of your mercy and grace and love toward us. We've done nothing to deserve your kindness. We've done much to deserve your wrath. And yet, in a display of your glory, you show us 
that your glory is made known through your grace. You give us what we don't deserve by giving us your son to come, be born, to live a perfect life free from sin and to die the death that we have all merited by our sin. And now, because of that, we have new life. We can be forgiven. Every sin can be wiped clean. Conscience is cleared. Marriages restored. Friendships healed. Wounds bound up. So God, would you do that this morning? Would you help us not become numb to the wonder of this story? To just file it into the the same box where we put the Christmas lights and the decorations that we pull it out once a year, merely out of tradition. But God, help us to be astounded that you came and you came to the lowly and as the lowly. And because you died, now you were exalted to the Father's right hand so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. We pray this in his name. And all God's people said, amen.